The Tom Woods Show, episode 1358. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, I know from experience that creating online courses is a nice way to start a side business. But how exactly do you do it? Well, I have a teensy-weensy bit of experience with this, and I've assembled some resources that are free that'll show you exactly how to do it. Pick them up at tomwoods.com slash makecourses. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. I'm delighted to welcome back to the program Stephen Walt, who is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. We're going to be talking about his book, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. Professor Walt serves on the editorial boards of Foreign Policy, Security Studies, International Relations, and the Journal of Cold War Studies. He's also taught at Princeton and the University of Chicago. He's been a resident associate of the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and was a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of several other books. Uh, We talked about – I had him on in the past to talk about the Iran nuclear deal, and I recommend you give that one a listen. I'll be linking to that on the show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 1358, so you can listen to that too. And I'd like to welcome Stephen Walt back to the show. Professor Walt, thanks so much for being here. It's very nice to be talking with you again. All right. These are the sorts of things that a lot of people who listen to my program want to say, and you've said them with with a tremendous amount of uh, empirical support behind you. And yet, so much of what you're saying it seems like it ought to be obvious to people and is obvious to people who live in other countries. The rest of the world more or less understands, I think, what you're talking about, about the problems of, of uh, liberal hegemony and American hegemony and problems with the way the American foreign policy elite looks at the world. It seems like everybody else gets this. So it's like we as Americans have to get our news from foreign sources to get a perspective that's somewhat reasonable. So I guess my first question to you is, and, and I know that you've, in effect, written a book-long reply to this, so deal with this as you like. But part of your thesis is that we have a foreign policy community that is – it's like they're in a giant bubble. They're completely isolated, and when they advocate something that has terrible consequences, they don't suffer any ill effects. They really don't. They continue on. People continue to listen to them. They still get invited on the television networks, whereas the naysayers, no matter how many times they're vindicated – They're never spoken of as great and wise statesmen the way repeated failures in the foreign policy establishment are. I guess I want to know, how is that possible? What's at work here that could account for this? Uh, Well, it's a complicated story. I mean, the first point I'd make, though, is that I actually think the American people, uh, although they don't, in fact, pay a lot of attention to foreign policy, and that's part of the reason why the elite can do what it does, uh, the American people have kind of figured a lot of this out. I mean, whatever one thinks of Donald Trump, right, when he ran for president in 2016, one of his big targets was, in fact, the foreign policy elite. He declared that American foreign policy was a complete and total disaster. And very interestingly, he was publicly opposed 
by Democrats for obvious reasons, but he was also publicly opposed by literally dozens of senior officials who were Republicans, former national security and foreign policy experts who had served in many Republican administrations, who wrote open letters denouncing his candidacy. One of them declared him utterly unfit for office. And of course, they did that because Trump was being very critical of our foreign policy. And I think he understood that it hadn't worked very well, that in fact, it was largely a failure. And if you compared where the United States was and its position in the world in, say, 1993-94, when the Clinton administration came in and the Cold War was over, and where it is today, it's mostly a record of failure, uh, not a, a lot of big successes. And then just as you said, the people responsible for that uh, have, by and large, escaped any real consequences, haven't been held accountable, and keep getting reappointed. And we could talk about specific examples, if you'd like, uh, of that phenomena. But I think the American people have kind of figured a lot of this out, and that helps explain why Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And yet, in the course of the campaign, you could find him saying all sorts of things about foreign policy. And sometimes he would seem very hawkish, and other times he would seem to be questioning the foreign policy establishment. And so his supporters, by and large, seem to be – they're willing to go along with him when he says we got to get out of these wars, but they seem more or less willing to go where he takes them. And the trouble is, as you note in your book, it's not really clear, even though he is critical of, for example, the war in Iraq and some other things, it's not – he's not very well read. He's not as curious as you might want him to be. He has surrounded himself by people who – really despise the foreign policy agenda that at times he seemed to espouse. And so he can go from, I want to get out of Syria to eh, staying in Syria is probably okay to back. But first of all, because he's, he's surrounded by the wrong people. And secondly, it's not clear that he's really grounded in anything other than just some instincts. Yeah, he had a, a number of, I think, decent instincts. I uh, did not have a sophisticated view uh, of international affairs, certainly didn't understand a lot of complexities, but many of his instincts that our allies in Europe were not uh, really pulling their weight in for the common defense, that trying to create a stable democracy in a place like Afghanistan was a fool's errand, that running around the world engaging in all these nation-building activities or uh, regime change of various kinds, these just hadn't worked particularly well. I think he also understood that globalization, as it had been pursued, wasn't working particularly well, was not delivering as promised, and that that had irritated a lot of Americans who were concerned about that. And you could multiply many examples. The problem is he didn't have a well-formulated alternative where he knew exactly what he wanted to do differently and how to do it. But he also faced a more fundamental problem, and it's really at the heart of the book. Even if he'd had a sophisticated view, who is he going to appoint to key positions who will know how to run the government, will have a lot of experience, will basically know how foreign policy is conducted, and will agree with him on his program? And the answer is hardly anyone. Because, again, the foreign policy establishment, both Republican and Democratic, has been strongly committed to these ideas of American global leadership, what I call in the book liberal hegemony, which basically is the United States using its power to try and spread American ideals all over the world, everywhere we possibly can. And that's been a bipartisan program ever since the end of the Cold War. Um, and in, in a funny way, 
Barack Obama faced exactly the same problem when he became president. I think he understood that we had were uh, were overcommitted, that some of the things we were trying to do in the world didn't make a whole lot of sense. But the people he could appoint to be secretary of state, to be national security advisor, to serve in the Pentagon, to be key advisors on the National Security Council, they were all drawn from that same foreign policy establishment, and they were going to push him in particular directions. And you sort of saw that throughout the entire Obama administration. So Obama and Trump, in a funny way, faced the same problem. They wanted to move in a different direction. I think Obama, for more sophisticated reasons and with a deeper understanding, but they faced constant opposition every time they tried to do something a little bit uh, more sensible in international affairs. And in Trump's case, of course, he's gradually been captured by the foreign policy blob, if you will. And so his rhetoric and his tweets are actually a lot different from what U.S. policy actually is. I hear that and I am inclined to believe it, yet I still can't help thinking that if there were somebody who were absolutely single-mindedly determined to start to withdraw U.S. forces from various places and adopt a more modest approach in foreign affairs, if somebody were single-mindedly determined to do that, like a Ron Paul, a guy whose arm they could not twist. I mean, Reagan couldn't twist his arm about the MX missile. You know, you couldn't twist his arm on anything. It seems like he could do it. Or what would they try to do? How would they stop him? I feel like Obama and Trump have other things. They don't want to you know, use up all their political capital on this. But for Ron Paul, that would have been his only issue. Let's do this. Well, I mean, again, you see see it with respect to NATO, for example. So Trump has expressed a hostility even towards NATO on a number of occasions. And I think, you know, presidents do have some agency and what they say does matter. And he certainly has rattled sensibilities in Europe in ways that I think aren't particularly helpful. But as soon as he does that, of course, the Senate passes a bipartisan resolution overwhelmingly reaffirming the American commitment to NATO and basically telling Trump, you try to take us out of uh, NATO, we will, in fact, resist you completely. So there's one case where he pays a big political price uh, for doing it as well. If any president uh, announced that, you know, we really ought to uh, uh, get out of Afghanistan, you'll have immediately leaks to the press about what the consequences would be and how this is going to allow ISIS or Al Qaeda to take over again in Afghanistan. And therefore, any terrorist incident that happens anywhere in the world will be this president's fault if they do that. Now, I agree with you. Uh, a smart, sophisticated, very canny politician could start moving in this direction. And for various reasons, I do think it is becoming somewhat easier to talk about a more restrained and more intelligent foreign policy. But if you tried to move that in that direction too quickly, you would face a lot of opposition. One final point is just this is a large establishment. It's a large bureaucracy. And there's millions of ways for large bureaucracies to slow down what you're trying to do. The president is only one person. He does have a set of advisors, but there's limits always to how quickly any president can move on almost anything. And that's, I think, especially true in the case of someone like Trump, who had political skills as a campaigner, but doesn't really know how to get things done in Washington. Now, let's talk about your argument, which is not, I think, particularly controversial, looking at Clinton, Bush, and Obama and saying that these years are not exactly filled with foreign policy successes. And one of the points you make is that relations with 
other major superpowers, namely Russia and China, have deteriorated. The trouble with that argument, unfortunately, is that in this day and age, even to mention Russia as a country with which you might potentially have a decent relationship is enough to make you almost out of bounds. If At least if you – I don't know if you spend a lot of time on Twitter – but if you even say the word Russia, you're some kind of a spook or an agent or whatever. You can't even have a rational conversation once the word Russia comes out of your mouth. Right. Well, one of the tendencies, I think, for a long time in American foreign policy is when we are having disagreements with another country, there's an immediate tendency to demonize them, to view yeah. them as the very embodiment of evil. And that's not to defend any of the countries we're currently at odds with, but to recognize simply that there are going to be clashes of interest between countries all the time. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, you know, uh, they're entirely bad and we're entirely good. But the case of Russia and you could add China are both good examples. Uh, in the beginning of the Clinton administration, our relations with both countries were actually pretty good, not perfect, but relatively good. Uh, and in fact, lots of things were going very well. Democracy was spreading around the world. Markets were expanding. Uh, Iraq was being disarmed by UN inspectors. Iran had no nuclear enrichment capacity in 1995, say. Uh, the Oslo peace process had been completed, so people think peace is going to break out in the Middle East. The European Union and NATO are both expanding. The American economy is doing pretty well, and the American military seems unstoppable. All right, so, you know, life is good uh, in 1995 or so, and people are very optimistic about the future. This is just going to continue. Well, you look at the world today, right? Our relationship with Russia, as you just said, is uh, now worse than at any time since the Cold War. You can barely talk about it in a rational way. Our relationship with China has deteriorated dramatically. Democracy is actually in retreat now around the world with uh, Freedom House reporting that this is the 13th consecutive year where global freedom has declined. Iran is now a near nuclear power. It could get a nuclear weapon if it ever wanted to. It has the capability. India, Pakistan, and North Korea have all been testing nuclear weapons. The two-state solution is not going to happen in the Middle East. The European Union's future is uncertain. And, of course, we also had September 11th, 2001, and then two failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, I don't think the United States and its foreign policy establishment are solely responsible for all of those things. But, boy, we had our fingerprints on a lot of them. And that's why I think you look at the last 25 years and you have to conclude this was a record really of considerable failure and relatively little accomplishment. So given that that's the case, it's a record of failure, relatively little accomplishment, then the question becomes how is it that it persists? And now this is not unique to foreign policy. You can find domestic analogs. Um, the Job Corps actually has a pretty lousy track record in terms of actually placing people in jobs for which they were trained. But no one would ever, ever think to question it just because of sheer inertia. And it just continues and no one bothers to look at it. But there's something special about the way foreign policy seems to be made. And I'm curious about – because you because you do have a chapter on this about how you actually go ahead and make the case for – what is clearly a failing foreign policy. And you talk about the marketplace of ideas. And in here, you say that something seems to be breaking down in that marketplace because it's not like the genuine free market that you would ideally want, where people of different perspectives get to voice them and then we weigh the pros and cons and we come to a decision. 
that doesn't seem to be how it actually works in practice. How does it work in practice? Right. Um, the marketplace of ideas in foreign policy is heavily distorted. I mean, part of the reason these bad policies persist is the United States is still an incredibly powerful, wealthy and secure country. You know, the only great power in the Western Hemisphere, no other country with nuclear weapons anywhere near us. You know, a deterrent capability protected by these two enormous oceans. So we can do a lot of dumb things for a long time and still be OK. The consequences of a lot of our mistakes are mostly visited upon other people. It's not that we're not affected at all, but we're somewhat insulated uh, from that. But secondly, we have this notion that in a democracy, you know, we have access to lots of information. The people know what's going on. They can decide between different options. We can debate different policies. When things are failing, we'll figure it out quickly and we'll revise our positions. And there is some truth in that. Uh, and you could argue that democracies are probably better than some kinds of authoritarian governments at learning from mistakes. But it is not a perfect process, and it doesn't uh, work especially well in foreign policy for a couple of reasons. One is information, of course, is not freely available. Uh, the government can classify lots of information so the American people don't actually know what's going on, don't exactly know where American troops might be, don't exactly know how many civilians are being killed by drones or things like that. Government officials can also selectively leak information if they're trying to sell or defend a policy. They can call up a reporter and leak something to manipulate what the public knows about them or knows about uh, what we're doing. That's very different than what happens, say, in domestic politics, right? If the economy is going badly, everybody's uh, out of work. If roads and bridges are crumbling. We all experience that. We can all see it for themselves. If there's a corruption scandal in state government, that gets printed up and written about. There's an awful lot that happens in foreign policy and national security policy that we just don't know about. And that allows those people doing it to, I think, mislead the public and sell their particular policies and keep people convinced that in order for Americans to be safe and prosperous, we have to keep trying to run the world and keep trying to reshape it according to American values. I want to read from page 143. This is a point that I keep on making. Uh, you say foreign policy mavens do debate the pros and cons of specific military actions, such as the merits of intervention in Syria's civil war but not the basic right of the United States to use force wherever and whenever it wishes. Now, I'm not, I'm not a huge Noam Chomsky fan, but nevertheless, I think he is right when he says that what an establishment like the foreign policy establishment wants is for the debate to be kept fairly narrow. So we're going to debate which way to carry out this ill-considered policy is the better one, as opposed to whether the policy should be carried out in the first place. And that's another major constraint, is that when I turn on the TV, I don't hear people shouting back and forth about fundamental questions. In fact, the example I've given the most is back in 2008, when we were down to just four candidates left for the Republicans after it started off at who knows how many, and it was, it was Ron Paul, Mike Huckabee, and then Romney and McCain. And it was the final debate. And Romney and McCain dominated the debate. And the debate consisted of utter trivialities about who wanted to deploy more forces where, at what moment. And at no time did they ask any fundamental questions. And I thought, what kind of a Alice through the looking glass am I watching here? 
That's exactly right. I mean, there's a, a chapter uh, which describes the foreign policy establishment at some length and talks about the, the sort of consensus set of beliefs. And as I said, and as the quotation you read suggests, it's not that there are not occasional disagreements over tactical issues. Uh, sometimes the debate is simply how much force to use, for example, not whether or not to use it at all. But there's an awful lot of things that just aren't questioned. I mean, I mentioned the American commitment to NATO. You could talk about the American relationship with Israel, the desirability of trying to spread democracy around the world, the way we think about countries uh, like Russia or China. You know, uh, if you're in the foreign policy establishment, uh, nuclear proliferation is a very bad thing. But of course, our nuclear weapons are absolutely indispensable. And the central theme in all of this is that American leadership is absolutely indispensable. We are, you know, the indispensable nation that must be in charge as in as many places as possible. And one of the things I uh, show is I look at three different task force reports uh, that were produced by various think tanks or groups in the foreign policy establishment over a 15 year period, beginning in 2006, running up to 2018. And these are three separate task forces. They are all bipartisan. So Republicans and Democrats, they all feature numerous uh, really credentialed VIP, bold-faced names from the foreign policy world. And they're written in rather different circumstances. Uh, the first one written before the financial crisis and, in fact, before the Iraq war has really gone south on us. The latter two written afterwards, one of them written after the emergence of ISIS. If you look at these three reports, uh, the Princeton Project on National Security, the Project for a United and Strong America, and the CNAS report, Extending American Power, if you look at all of these reports, they're basically identical. They're interchangeable. They even use some of the same rhetoric. So no matter what the circumstances the country's in, what its economy's like, what's happening in different parts of the world, the answer is always the same. The United States needs to be engaged almost everywhere, needs to be promoting democracy, markets, rule of law almost everywhere, and basically needs to be in charge. And that's a recipe, I think, for perennial overcommitment. And it also ends up getting us into projects that we simply don't know how to complete and haven't succeeded in doing. What's your impression of Tulsi Gabbard? Um, Tulsi Gabbard is very controversial. Uh, I've met her on one occasion. I think she's quite smart. I think she is uh, something of an iconoclast. I think uh, she has not always been as maybe as politically careful as she should have been. But she is, I think, a sort of principled skeptic about our tendency towards overcommitment and certainly our tendency to use force first and ask questions later. So I think she's actually at this point a useful voice in the foreign policy debate. And that might be one one area in which, you know, there is sort of rays of hope that I have begun to see in the last couple of years, a sort of broader spectrum, right? That ideas that previously had been pretty marginalized are now coming into more prominence. I, I don't think we've sort of shifted the overall balance of power in favor of what, again, I've called liberal hegemony towards something more restrained. But it does seem to be a broader conversation than we were having, say, five or 10 years ago. And that's very healthy. Yeah, I agree. Now, with the Democrats, what's been interesting is that under Trump, when he's wanted to try to pull back here and there, well, some of them are just in 
anti-Trump mode all the time. So they'll find some reason that, well, we shouldn't withdraw from such and such place until the generals tell us. So we'll wait for the military-industrial complex to tell us when they think everything's okay. Then we'll we'll never get out if that's the way they want to do it. But also there are, obviously, as we know, all these new progressive members of Congress who've been elected among the Democrats, and they tend to be pretty anti-war, but yet it seems kind of low on their priority list. Whereas for Tulsi, she wants to talk about it all the time, and that's why I think she's particularly uh, helpful in this regard. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And and again, she started uh, sort of before this new wave. And that's kind of what I what I mean, that there is a broader debate. It's no longer, you know, running the gamut from A to B. We're now maybe running from A to E or A to F, uh, not quite yet the full alphabet. But that's actually important. Uh, and another important part of sort of the ecology of our foreign policy establishment, that if you look in Washington today, you know, it's not just who's in Congress. It's also who forms what, uh, you know, Ben Rhodes, Obama's deputy national security advisor, called the foreign policy blob. You know, it's the, the penumbra of think tanks and lobbies and other organizations, to some degree, journalists and the media that are pundits and comments and organize seminars and meetings and lobby on Capitol Hill and shape opinion more broadly. If you look at that blob, it's still pretty heavily biased in favor of an interventionist foreign policy. There's not a lot of difference between Brookings, the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, the Carnegie Endowment. Again, there are some variations there. Obviously, individuals are going to have slightly different views on different subjects. But the overall consensus within Washington, within the blob, is still one very much in favor of a very ambitious American foreign policy of liberal hegemony, global uh, dominance, if you will. And until that balance changes, until you have some people actively engaged in the public debate on a constant basis, and I mean by this like an infrastructure of other think tanks with different views who can be waging this battle in the marketplace for ideas on a constant basis, I don't think you're going to see enough of a shift. So in a sense, we have to broaden the foreign policy community um, and have a much wider debate. And there's some evidence of people trying to get that debate started, but it's got a ways to go in my view. Last time I spoke to you, we talked about Iran. And for years, going all the way back into George W. Bush days, there's been, and of course, even before that, but it really, really began to pick up in the second Bush term, a lot of uh, bellicosity toward Iran, but nothing came of it. And then under Obama, well, you know, I think Obama's heart was not in that, but still, there was still, uh, I mean, and obviously Obama wanted to, I think the deal that he made with Iran did show that he was somewhat different, certainly different from the neocons in that respect, but still there's been beneath the surface of a bellicosity toward Iran that's now resurfaced. There's a community of folks who have wanted war with Iran that have, have not gone away. How does that ever get de-escalated? What would, what would de-escalation with Iran have to look like? How would it happen? Well, I think Iran has been one of those issues where, yes, there's been a, a general consensus that Iran was an adversary, that there were various reasons why we were at odds with Iran. But there was some disagreement then over what was the best way to deal with that. And you saw that in the debate in Washington over the Iran nuclear deal in the Obama administration. That particular deal was one of those places where the consensus uh, broke down. You had people on both sides 
And you did, in fact, have a pretty lively debate. And the Obama administration ultimately carried the day and was able to get uh, the deal through, which lasted until Donald Trump got elected, of course. It's worth noting that even the Obama administration was antagonistic towards Iran, viewed it as a rival. And many people who supported the nuclear deal also thought that once the deal was signed, the United States had to ratchet up more pressure on Iran on the other issues we cared about, that this wasn't an end to the rivalry at all. What's most interesting about this, though, at least for me, is the fact that, again, it gets back to what we were talking about before, the simple lack of learning. I mean, we've been trying to engineer some kind of regime change in Iran now for a couple of decades, despite the track record of what happens when we do engage in regime change in other places. And it's quite striking that some of the loudest voices who were advocating for going to war with Iraq, one of the great foreign policy blunders in American history, are now advocating for a policy of maximum pressure on Iran with the obvious goal, which they will state explicitly, of regime change, possibly using military force. We haven't done it yet, obviously, but you know all options are on the table, as people uh, like to say. And one of those people is not you know, an obscure uh, writer, but rather the current national security advisor, John Bolton. Now, you would think if we had accountability, if we had a certain capacity to hold people accountable, to learn from our mistakes, we might be a country that would say, look, you've had plenty of opportunities to screw up American foreign policy in the past. You've done a great job of screwing up American foreign policy, but we don't want you to keep doing it. And the fact that John Bolton is in such a prominent position, I think, is a good example of the simply the unaccountable nature of much of our foreign policy elite. Let's wrap up with this. You have been uh, disappointed with what you know how Trump has turned out in terms of foreign policy, because as you say, at least you know for all his other uh, qualities, he was willing to say some things that nobody else was saying about foreign policy. But you say that his attempt to bring about what he calls an agenda of America first was basically stillborn. Now, some people will point and say that there have been real. There are some real advances that you can point to, but you've been skeptical. So what is – first of all, why why are you skeptical? And secondly, if you could advise him and you had just a few minutes to speak to him, what would you say? Uh, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I would tell him to, to get rid of his Twitter account or at least not use it to make any comments on foreign policy. Because- oh, OK, maybe I'll accept that second part. But the entertainment value of that Twitter account. Well, I think potentially the, <laughs> the damage is greater. Uh, that I I would tell him that there are several policies he ought to reverse course on immediately. He should reverse course on the Iran nuclear deal and say that the United States is, in fact, going to abide by it and then continue to work with the other members of the P5 plus one to address some of uh, Iran's other activities. Uh, he would say that he's uh, if he took my advice, he would say I have rethought the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this multilateral trade deal that he walked away from. And I think it was actually a good idea. It might need to get tweaked a little bit, but it's an important part of bolstering the American position in Asia as well. I would then say uh, that his decision to send more troops to Afghanistan in his first year, something, by the way, that Barack Obama did too, also sent more troops to Afghanistan in his first year as president, was a mistake. And he is, in fact, going to uh, withdraw uh, the American forces there, whether or not we have a peace deal. Uh, with the Taliban or not, that ultimately this is not a vital interest for the United States and that uh, we're going to leave as well. 
I'd probably have a few other things that I would add to that as well. And the problem with Trump, of course, is I think mostly character deficiencies, right? He's he's inattentive. He's impulsive. He doesn't listen to advice. Uh, he thinks he can accomplish things through some form of personal charm or magical deal-making ability. But as I think we've just seen in his meeting with Kim Jong-un in Vietnam, uh, that magical charm and deal-making ability doesn't allow him to overcome uh, other states' uh, vital interests as well. So we end up actually, I think, in the Trump administration with the worst of both worlds. We're still overcommitted in lots of places. We're still trying to manage and run the world in a variety of ways, but we're now doing it with an incompetent skipper at the helm of the ship of state. And not surprisingly, we see uh, no major foreign policy achievements in the Trump presidency and instead a gradual erosion in the American image in the world and the trust that other countries have. Uh, because how can you trust a president who uh, lies with such facility and frequency? How can you believe that he would ever fulfill any promise he might make? Uh, that's not been his track record for the last 40 years, and it's really not been his track record as president. All right. I, I, I guess I misled you because I'm going to ask one final. Sure. This is the final, final question, but it's related to that. It could well be that he trusts his own instincts to the point where he doesn't listen to advice, but at least as problematic is that the advice he gets is terrible because he picks terrible people. I mean, if I were to listen to his foreign policy speeches, I would not have thought that John Bolton would have any position whatsoever in a, a Trump administration, not to mention Elliot Abrams, Mike Pompeo. I mean, we could just go on and on down the line. So he picks people who are completely at odds. For example, I don't think Bill Clinton would do that. I don't think Democrats generally do that. They, they pick people who are right in line with what they want. I don't understand why he's doing that. So my question to you would be, who would be people he could have chosen, you think would have good judgment, and who would be, let's say, at least well-known enough that they wouldn't be laughed out of court if he did nominate them? Um, but again, that goes back to something I said before. I don't think there were very many people like that. That is to say, if, if the combination was you have to have people who were sort of attuned to Trump's worldview or at least sympathetic to it and willing to implement a more restrained foreign policy. And simultaneously, they are people with enough experience doing foreign policy that they're not going to make lots and lots of rookie mistakes. That number of people is vanishingly small. Right. There's a there are academics, there are people like me. But, you know, if you brought me into the government tomorrow and made me national security advisor, I can guarantee you I might have a lot of smart ideas, but I would make a lot of mistakes because I haven't done a job like that before. Uh, and I think this was, again, the challenge Trump had. And of course, he did, wasn't, I think, astute enough to realize that he had this problem. Right. Some of the people that he appointed early on, like Mike Flynn, were just oddballs as well. You know, there's this story that Trump didn't even expect to win the presidency, so he hadn't thought about who he was likely to need to appoint. What I think you, he would, would have had to have done is try to appoint some people who were at least open-minded on some of these issues. And then, as you said, uh, you know, at the very beginning of this interview, then he would have had to sit them down and say, look, this is the foreign policy I'm going to run. This is how I'm going to approach the world. And if you're not on board with that, don't take the job. But that's the way I want to go. And I'm going to force you as my subordinates to move in that direction. And if you keep resisting what I'm doing, I'll pull you out and I'll find somebody else. 
He's done a little of that. The problem is every time he fires someone or every time they quit, he tends to pick somebody worse. And so we're ending up with a foreign policy that's veering back in the same unsuccessful lines we've seen for a long time. There was a guy, now I cannot for the life of me remember his name, Middle Age Strikes Again, from I think Virginia, and I think he's a former senator, a conservative Democrat. Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh. Uh, with, the, with the Navy? Yeah, exactly. And James Webb. Webb, yes, right. And and some people were saying that he was thinking of Webb as a possible, I don't know, if, I forget which position he was being considered for, but isn't Webb at least plausible? Because he has a somewhat realist view of foreign policy. I think he has a realist view of foreign policy. I think there's a, the jury is sort of would be divided on whether or not he would actually be a sort of effective administrator in that role. He's not young. He's uh, got a reputation for being a bit of a hothead. Uh, so uh, who knows if he would actually be effective in a role like that. But again, my point is that these organizations, you got to fill a lot of positions to run foreign policy in this country. And you can't do it by having you know one or two people who are on board with you and then everybody else who's basically waging guerrilla warfare to prevent you from doing what you want. You have to build, I think, a broader foreign policy establishment with lots of different views and people who start to acquire some experience in these jobs so that over time, the United States ends up with a more sensible foreign policy elite and therefore a more sensible policy. Uh, I say this is going to take 10 or 20 years. And I, I wrote the book, uh, The Hell of Good Intentions, to try and accelerate that process and maybe make uh, a 20 year process take only 10 years. Well, it's a great and interesting book, and my friend Scott Horton says his only objection is in the title, the words good intentions. He says he refuses to concede that the foreign policy establishment has good intentions. All right, all right, but it's a great book, Scott. It's a great book. So the book is The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite and the Decline of U.S. Primacy. I'll link to it on our show notes page, which is tomwoods.com slash 1358. But once again, Professor Walt, we appreciate your time, and thank you very much. My pleasure talking with you. All right, folks, that is going to do it for today. If you like and appreciate what I'm doing over here, please consider becoming a supporting listener of the show and joining me in the Tom Woods Show Elite. You know that little voice in your head says you belong in that group, and we would love to have you. Entrance is via supportinglisteners.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.